The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Why have a bad day when you can have a good day? Find your direction and focus on it. Happiness resides within. No one is more beautiful than you. Healthy skin is a reflection of overall wellness. Be imperfect, live longer. It's not enough to know yourself. You have to become yourself. These are just a few of the insights or sayings that my guest has inspired people with. I like to call them muratisms. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is none other than Dr. Howard Murad, the founder and doctor behind Murad Skincare. Murad Skincare was founded in 1989 and is the first modern doctor brand of clinical skincare products setting a new standard for high-performance skincare. Dr. Murad has always rooted his brand in science, efficacy, safety, and most importantly, whole body wellness. I've been a fan of the brand for a while now, but this conversation is the first time I learned about Dr. Murad's inspiring and resilient story, from immigrant to pioneer. He was the youngest of six children born to Jewish parents in Iraq. He fled Baghdad with his family in 1946 at seven years old. Leaving everything behind to start a new life, the family of eight squeezed into a tiny 600-square-foot apartment in Queens, New York. He shares with us how he continues to build an optimistic mindset and how he turns obstacles into opportunities and what optimism has to do with failure, risk-taking, and the importance of truly honoring yourself. Well, welcome to Looking Up. And the way that we start this podcast is a little intro section that I like to call Looking In. And it's basically just a series of short rapid fire style questions just for myself and the audience to sort of get to know you a little more intimately. Has there been a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? No, I can't say that there is. I believe in honoring myself. For example, I, uh, I have right side books myself, and some of them I have recipes, and I tell, you know, for cooking. And I tell the reader, please don't pay attention to the recipe. And I say, why are you putting a recipe in the book? You don't want me to read it. Because I want it to honor yourself. And so I want you to look at that recipe and see what really makes a difference for you. In other words, I don't like pepper. So there's pepper in there. Why should I have it in that recipe? Because it's not mine. So I say, take out what you don't like and put in things that you do like. If you don't like it at all, don't take it. So the idea is, I think, it's very important to honor yourself in everything you do, to become important to yourself. We're important to a lot of other people a lot of times, but we're not important enough to ourselves. 
So I, not that I don't have any books that I don't like, but it's, it's just the idea that I, I like to learn what I say, learn from myself. And um, it's kind of a different way of looking at things, but in a way it honors me and it allows me to be the best me. I actually love that answer. I have recorded quite a few episodes and that is always my first question to people. And you are the first person that has answered in that way, which I really respect. And I actually really understand what you're saying. Are there some words or a sentiment or a notion that you live by, sort of like a self-motto, something that you've kind of learned and come up with yourself that has actually changed the way in which you do live your life? I actually have hundreds of what I call insights and people can call them affirmations. But the first one I ever created over 20 years ago is why have a bad day when you can have a good day. Mm. I begin to like now magic only happens when you create your own. Mm. Uh, but a lot of them are allowing the unique you to blossom, be thrilled with who you are, be comfortable with who you are, learn from yourself. You know, a lot of, I have so many of these, what I call insights, other people call them affirmations, but I live by all of them. I love that you call them insights and, you know, that why have a bad day when you can have a good day is actually very rooted in a lot of the work that I do. So that one really speaks to me. And sometimes it's it's harder to put into practice than others, but I just love the simplicity of it. And you can't really argue with it, you know? And I think that it's up to you. Yeah. So my next question for you is sort of an interesting one, and I'm excited to hear your response to it. But people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. Well... I'm actually an introvert, and people think because of what I've done and what I do that I'm an extrovert, but I'm certainly an introvert. If you put me in a group that I walk into a room and I don't know anybody, I'm a wallflower. I'll stick at the back of the door, and and no one will even know I'm there. Mm. So I, 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 it's hard for me to start a conversation. Once somebody starts a conversation, I'm okay. I can start it, but... I have trouble beginning a conversation. And three words, just three, if you could describe yourself as a teenager during the high school years. Uh, Well, I can't say in three words. Can you give me a few more than three words? Yes, of course. We we can always bend the rules. Um, Yes. Uh, Well, I I had a different experience in high school. My parents were very poor, and um, I had to actually work to help support my parents, believe it or not. So I used to deliver newspapers. I used to work in a bowling alley. Uh, this is before they had machines, and I would set up the pins, pins myself. I did school. I did well in school, but I, I was not a super student because I was working most of the time. I didn't have time, or did I have a girlfriend to um, go to a prom? Those were the three words that, that kind of describes me. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it does. Wow. When we dive more into the heart of this episode, I actually really want to learn more about your childhood. So we're going to, we will start there. When, when is the last time that you cried? I don't remember ever crying. I mean, I'm sure I cried when I was a child, but I don't remember crying as an adult. And I've had very sad experiences like we all have. But uh, that's in the family and things like that. But I don't recall crying. Is that something that you find 
conscious or how do you explain that? Not really ever crying. Well, I always look at the positive. I use things like another one of my insights is turn obstacles into opportunities. I, I always want to look at the, the positive. You know, um, I, I don't want to fear any failure or anything like that. I want to feel that things will be better in a way. That's how I feel. I have a positive attitude. Have you always been that way, like since a child? Or is that something that you has been more of a learned sense of optimism? I think I got it from my father. I'll tell you an interesting story about him. We immigrated to the United States when I was a child that was seven years old. And my father, uh, we came from Iraq. And uh, my father uh, had a business there. And he lost all of his money. And he ended up in his late 70s as being a messenger in Manhattan. In those days, he earned 75 cents an hour, which was minimum wage. And there was no fax or email. So there was a paper to be taken. It would go from one office to the other. That was his job. And uh, he spoke in broken English. He understood and so on. And one day, he was working minimum wage. He couldn't have had much money or anything. He got mugged on the subway on the way home. And uh, we lived in a fourth store walk up and he walked up all the four steps and we came to the door and opened the door and said, oh, my gosh, what happened to you? You're bleeding. What are your glasses? What, what, what's going on? He says, don't worry. It's OK. My left leg still works. <sighs> and to show you that kind of upbringing, uh, I think that's where it came from. Uh, wow. I mean, that's his attitude and obviously my father. Wow, that's actually incredible. That's an incredible story. Well, I feel like my last question for you in this little series is going to be something that I feel like you are very used to answering from the little things that I've heard so far. Uh, what are three things that have brought you joy today? Well, being on the, on the air with you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I woke up this morning and I had breakfast with my wife and we had a nice talk and conversation and it was a beautiful beginning of my day. And the fact that it was okay that my iPod didn't work because it, it was fine. You can still hear me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for, thanks for um, answering. I, I almost said playing the game with me, but it's, that, it's a fun little way in the beginning. And to be honest, again, most of your answers are answers that are really unique. And I don't I often hear sort of a pattern in these. And I, I think that some of your answers were true outliers, which now I'm just even more excited to delve into this chat with you. I really do want to start. I think most people out there have heard of the brand Murad. I don't think many people know the the heart and the man behind Murad. So this interview is really, really, really interesting and an exciting one for me. And we can't really obviously talk about the heart and the man behind Murad without really understanding who you are and where you came from. And I'm just now fascinated by this sort of attitude, uh, really, truly, and it sounds very authentic to me because I talk a lot about optimism and the authenticity of it. And oftentimes it doesn't look like just slapping a bumper sticker on things and sort of negating how you truly feel, which sometimes is, is an emotion that doesn't feel good. But when I see you and I hear you and these stories and your insights, 
it, it's pretty incredible because I actually believe it. And I know you believe it. And it feels really authentic. And I think oh, it's true, but probably being brought up with that type of mentality, like the story you just shared with your of your father. I'm wondering, do you have siblings? I'm the youngest of six. And are all of your siblings, do they all share a similar... I'm very fascinated by, you know, things like innate behavior, learned siblings, twin studies. So I'm just like, tell me about your siblings and do many of them, most of them or none of them share that same um, optimistic attitude that your father seems to have. And you absolutely do. They do, but not to the extent that I have. They do have a positive attitude by and large. And they've lived, you know, very, very good lives. And I would say, yes, they, they do have the same thing. And, and I think we can commiserate because we understand each other very well. What do you think makes yours more intense? Or sort of if there was a spectrum closer to sort of that, that example of someone, your father, being literally robbed and beaten and saying, oh, don't worry, my left leg still works. Why why do you think you possess that more so than maybe some of your siblings? I'm a risk taker. I'm willing to take a risk and willing to, I don't fear failure. It's another one of my insights. Fear of failure leads to failure. So I'm willing to take a lot of risks and I don't think any of the others have it. If they do, they don't have it to the extent I do. And probably most of them don't have much of a risk-taking ability. And um, again, I mean, you know, you brought up by your mother and your father. And my mother was in her own way different. She was not a perfectionist to the extreme. So she was a good cook. But, you know, there were times she'd burn the food or something like that or too much salt in it or whatever. And she'd bring it up to you and she'd say, hey, this is really good. It's a little bit burned, but it's delicious. You like it. It's okay. So she... It didn't bother her that the food didn't come out right because she made the best of it in her own way. Yeah. So um, I had more of her and her, I guess you'd call it risk-taking. She was willing to to take the consequences of her risk-taking as well. Again, we had no money. So she used to work as a seamstress. She wasn't a seamstress. She knew, you know, she didn't do much. But she'd walk into one of these ladies' stores and, She'd say she's a seamstress and, you know, have her do the hems. And sometimes it'll come out fine. <laughs> a lot of times it didn't. And they would fire her. And she'd say, okay, she'd go right next door and she'd do the same thing again wow. and apply for a job there. So, you know, she was willing to say, okay, um, it happened. So what can I do? So I, I got, in my mind, the best of both of them. Wow. That actually is is such an incredible point because literally just today I was talking to my husband and I always tell people I I might be the optimism doctor and I definitely know a whole lot about how to help people increase their optimism from a science-based perspective, et cetera. But I am not the most optimistic person and I am also trying to increase my own. And one of the things that you brought up right now that I find so interesting is that I am not a risk taker. And I actually think my risk aversive sort of mentality, you know, I I take risks sometimes, but very cautioned. And I think that risk aversiveness of me actually holds me back in my optimism. And it's sort of the work that I have to do because there is that sort of, whether it's fear of failure or just fear in general, 
of mm -hmm. something, you know, not going right. And, and sometimes it's not about failure, but it's about, you know, being hurt physically. Or, you know, I was never that kid that was, you know, jumping all over the monkey bars. And my son, my older son is definitely more cautious. And it's, it's absolutely because I was literally always saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, be careful. Uh, and um, I think it's so important, uh, all the research that I look at to allow our children to take, obviously in a, not in a crazy way, but to take risks and to learn from mistakes. And we learn the best through our mistakes. But I love the example also of your mom you know, trying to get a job and saying, I'm a seamstress, even though she wasn't a seamstress, but knowing that like she could figure it out. And if she didn't and it didn't go well, she would go to, she persevered. And so there's that, like, I'll just get up and keep trying. But there is this aspect of, you know, if it doesn't exist, but I want it to exist, I'm going to make it exist. And having that confidence to just say, I can do this. And guess what? I do do this, you know? Yeah. And so I think that is, really, really, really important for many people to hear as well, even people starting their own businesses. And this obviously touches a lot on the idea of imposter syndrome and, and just not ever feeling like, you know, who's to say who a seamstress is really when you think about it. If you sew, are you a seamstress or do you have to have some level of... So I think that's so interesting and just, I love your insights. I, I hope that we hear many more throughout this, but so what, like walk me through this child that we're getting to know right now and, you know, delivering newspapers, working in bowling alleys, this very strong mentality that things are going to be better, things are going to be okay. How do you get into beauty? Oh. <laughs> or dermatology? I wish I could tell you, but it's going through a lot of failure. You know, actually, um, in college, I wanted to be an engineer but I didn't do very well in statistics and in math. So uh, my, my older brother, who's a pharmacist, said, you know, you like science, why don't you become a pharmacist? And so I switched to pharmacy school. And along the way, I really felt like I wanted to be a doctor. And, and in, in this case, I had fear that I wasn't good enough. I said, oh, those other people are probably smarter than me and whatever, because my grades were good, but they weren't, you know, wonderful. And the reason for that, I, I was working all the time and, and had other things to do, too. And then I decided, well, what the heck? I, I'll apply to medical school. If I don't get in, I'll, I won't get in. But it had to be somewhere where I could earn money while I was there because I had no money to go to school. And um, I got my license for pharmacy in California, because California at that time paid $5 an hour, which is a long time ago for a pharmacist, and New York only paid three. I had to pay for my tuition, my room and board and everything, along with going to medical school. So I applied to a school in California, got accepted, and um, I worked nights. And the first year was where I had to make more so I'd have a reservoir a little bit. And so uh, the first year of medical school, was didactic and we had the summer off. And so that summer I worked as a pharmacist, but I worked from 11 in the morning till seven at night in one pharmacy. And then I go back to where I was staying and it was sort of halfway between the two pharmacies, but and I take basically cat nap and I'd come back and work 11 at night till seven in the morning. Wow. And I did that five days a week. And then 
on the weekends, I had another pharmacy where I worked nine to five or something like that. So it was, you know, okay. Um, and I did that for the whole summer. I remember the amount of money I made was close to $5,000, which the tuition at that time was only 1500 And wow. books were 100 And the room I lived in was a 1817 and an 8th. It was an 8th of a, <laughs> an apartment. It had a Murphy bed and uh, a kitchen in the back and a bathroom. And it was a tiny, I don't know, maybe 150 square feet in total. But so that was enough because... Then I had to go to the hospital and I, I couldn't take the time off like I did uh, the other times. Also, the work ethic is unbelievable. But how did you find your way into dermatology and then into beauty? So you went to pharmacy school and while you were working as a pharmacist, you then went to med school. Correct. And again, that was also different. And again, I have a saying, make your mark on the canvas of life and let it direct you. So the canvas of life was science, I guess, in a way. And when I finished medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. So this was, I finished medical school in 1966. And at that time, we had the war in Vietnam. And I was drafted in the army. And Uncle Sam had the goodness of the heart to send me to Vietnam because he thought I needed to learn some surgery. Oh. And during the war, I had my fill of surgery, and I didn't want to go back. But uh, along the way, um, I had an experience with a person that I met who was a dermatologist. And he's saying how nice dermatology was and things like that. But I said, ah, cool, cool. That's boring. <laughs> so I came back to the United States. I had my own clinic. And in the afternoon, I was assigned to the dermatology center. And I really began to like it. So I became a dermatologist. So that was the first step. Getting into beauty is, I believe in, in the idea of honoring yourself and honoring my patients. So I listen to my patients and listen to their needs. One, one of my favorite sayings is, I'm a dermatologist, and I have seen literally over 50,000 different patients, and I have never seen an acne patient. And people say, how kind of dermatologist are you with no acne patients? I had, no, I don't have any acne patients. I have patients who had acne. Huh. I kind of listened to my patients as a dermatologist. And in the very early 1980s, I realized dermatology was more than just treating psoriasis and eczema and skin cancer. And I actually had an esthetician and an electrologist work in my medical practice. And then a couple of years later, I decided that I wanted to go further. And I opened up an independent facility 20 miles away from my medical practice of a day spa it was called a sense of self understanding what we talk about now mm -hmm. you know self and there i had the estheticians follow me for 30 hours minimum before they could work in the spa so they had that experience and that led me to starting my brand because i at that time i, I had a lot of experience in my practice I saw over 10,000 different patients with the alpha hydroxy acid that I was treating them with and amazing results. So I decided to start a brand and start to sell to salons. And again, I had no experience in business. I was cheated. I was, people took advantage of me and I paid too much to, you know, whatever. But along the way, it, it became successful. And there were many times when it looked like it was a failure. I had no experience in business. I wasn't a business person. I was more of a, 
a doctor, but I don't know, it's a long-winded story, but that's how I got there. It all actually makes so much sense. And especially now knowing how much the Murad brand really puts a lot of weight on, on the whole body, whole human wellness. And I think that's something that really draws me to the brand. And I actually am so honored to be on the advisory council right now. But what draws me to the brand so much is that sort of history of your conviction with skincare being not just about your skin, but it's about what's within and not to sound cliche, but but you really do. And it sounds like it makes a lot of sense with your backstory. You know, you really like look at the whole person when you're treating them. And it also that goes into the formulation of all your products. And something that I absolutely love is your sort of commitment to talking about how to to help people deal with the idea of environmental stress. And it's not just about the physical parts that obviously we've heard of environmental stress and how that can can be something that is reflective on our skin from a physical way, but also like from an internal way. And you actually like send out, a, you know, a, a little like questionnaire, your like ethos and all your insights, which I am now, um, I've heard of them called from your team, like mur- muratisms and, and insights. I, I totally get it now. You've already dropped like 10 or so on this episode. And I, I'm eager to, to learn more. They just kind of roll off your tongue and they make you think. And it's just such a realistic but beautiful way of life. Are there any rituals or wellness practices? Um, and they could involve skincare, of course, because I think that's part of it, but that you personally practice every single day. And obviously, I'm sure that's evolved. But currently, right now, what are you doing in your day <laughs> for wellness? As far as rituals, of course, I use you know sunscreens and moisturizers and things like that. But I like to um, explain skincare in a way that I understand it. I say skincare is healthcare, and people say skincare is just your skin. Getting rid of maybe skin cancer, getting rid of wrinkles, getting a Botox shot, something like that. But the truth is, if you're really taking care of your skin, you have to also be taking care of the rest of your body. So if I were to ask you or anybody, is your skin drier today than it was 10 years ago? I think the answer would be yes. A fact of life is we go from a stage of full hydration to less hydration. There are over 300 different theories of aging. And the final common pathway of every single one of them is that we go from a stage of full hydration to less. So we get drier as we get older. Now, one of the ways we get drier is our skin gets damaged from the sun, the environment, the pollution, and so on. And it penetrates through our skin into our bloodstream and affects every organ in our body. If we go out and get a sunburn, yes, our skin is red, but we also feel lethargic, tired, so on. So we're affecting this first line of defense of anything and maintaining the moisture of our, our body is our skin. We have to do that topically in every other way. The reverse is true. If your heart's not healthy, then you're going to have a bad skin because you're not going to have good circulation. So the final pathway to have better skin, and it shows on your skin, is you do all the other things that improve your hydration. How do you improve your hydration? Of course, moisturizers and sunscreens for your skin. Eat your water. Water Water-rich foods are better than drinking water. Water is just water. Raw fruits and vegetables have all kinds of phytonutrients, antioxidants, and uh, it's in the structure. The water is in the structure and it's gradually released instead of going right through you. 
and uh, makes your body alkaline, resistant to cancer, bone loss, and things like that. Exercise, move your body. When you exercise, you sweat, you get thirsty maybe, but you're building muscle, and muscle is 70% water, fat is only 10% water. And then finally, reducing stress. The worst stress, I believe, is called cultural stress, the stress of modern living. The rules and regulations, digital dependency, and all the things that we talk about. I've done a lot of independent research on that. So the idea is all of those together, but that shows up on your skin. So it's all complete. How do you personally sort of deal with the cultural stress? Oh, well, it's my attitude predominantly. I mean, I I deal with it because it is what it is. I have to make the best of it. Reframe and rewrite the regulatives in your life. Just you have to just look at it in a different way, turn obstacles into opportunities. So things like that, that, that make it make my life happier. And I, I try pretty much to do all of the things that uh, I've been talking about, use my sunscreens, moisturizers and things like that. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. I have a trainer four times a week. And I understand this stress of modern living, cultural stress, and I try to use my computer less. I try to move a little bit because one of the tendencies of the stress is the depression and the social isolation and so on. So try to connect with different people on the phones and things like that. In like the 80s when you started Murad and um, obviously you were already well into your practice and you were talking about some of these things, you know, whether it was managing stress and more so aspects of our body from the inside, was that sort of looked at very strangely in the skincare beauty industry? And was it something that you felt like you were somewhat innovative in, or at least talking about something different? Absolutely. You know, um, I coined the term internal skincare way back in 94. I had patents on a supplement that actually, if you took it uh, four pills per, for uh, a day for five weeks, statistically significantly reduced wrinkles and improved elasticity of your skin. And I had another one that you could take and improve the SPF of sunscreen if you took a combination of that. So the idea of treating your skin from inside and outside, which was heresy, nobody right. <laughs> talked about. So yes, that was one of the things that, that I did and brought out. And also, so uh, and the, uh, the whole idea of looking at the whole person, a whole person approach and that's that's been my life right away always do you think that the beauty industry and the skincare industry has evolved and how has it evolved today um i think we hear about that type of sort of intervention or treatment style a little more often now but how are some of the ways that the that the skincare industry has evolved and how are some of the ways you hope that it continues to evolve well it's evolved to the place where i have been you know, again, we're beginning to see more supplements coming on. You're seeing more and more uh, products that talk about stress. I don't think as much as we really need because the real stress, the real problem with our society is what I call cultural stress, the stress of modern living, because it's constant, pervasive, ever-increasing, and it's never going away. So the idea of managing that stress, because it's something like if you break your arm, you get stressed, you go to the doctor, you get it fixed. Right. You can't fix cultural stress because you're gonna people are gonna try to make you more perfect because you have to answer all of those questions and you have to know everything. Everybody is better than you in a way. If you 
like a failure. So you have to understand this is what it is and I have to adjust to it and make the best of it and understand how I can transfer some of that. I also think part of the cultural stress along with all of that, and, and actually it is very prominent in skincare, is this just wave of saturation and choices and overload of information of one hand, you know, everybody has a platform. So you hear, this is really bad for you, or this is good for you, or this is the magic fix, or this is it, or that's it. And you, you weeding out and making, you know, it's, it's decision fatigue, but really uh, this idea that I talk about a lot, which is we've kind of lost, it's not, it's not that we've lost it, but there's a harder relationship we have between ourselves and our intuition now. And we have a lot of decision fatigue. And within the skincare world, what are some good ways that people can kind of weed through the fluff and really get to what they need and what's right and and what's good for them? How can we sort of... Any tips on that um, that we should look for in brands? Well, I think the important thing is trust yourself and don't, don't, don't emulate. Don't try to do what somebody else does. I mean... You know what's good for you if you just pay attention to yourself. Right. So you look at a brand and you say, okay, what does it stand for? Uh, is that something that I also believe in? And is, if you see a difference when you're using the products and that's going to be helpful, then that's important. And I think, I think it's, it's that more than anything. It's, it's you have to trust your, yourself and not just get because a lot of people will say, use this product because in five days you'll do X, Y, and or Z. Or X, Y, and Z celebrities using it. So it must be right. right. Must be good. So again, it all goes back honoring yourself. Be thrilled with who you are. Remember to wear your crown because you deserve a crown. And pay attention to yourself. You know, I, I, I have a questionnaire for my patients. And the first question is, who's the most important person in the world to you? And it's always somebody else, right? Of course. Child, whatever. Right. And the truth is, without you, there is no someone else. So you have to be, you have to honor yourself. You have to be thrilled with who you are. Those are very important words and for me. So in, in the same way with, with the product that you use, you can see in yourself and don't pay attention to all the words that are out there in the advertisements. When you put the product on and you see the difference over time, you know that it was proper for you. So again, it's going back to trusting yourself. Is there truly an absolutely non-toxic product that actually works? You know, the answer is they're really, I mean, drinking water is going to keep your, well, hydrating yourself in a way. They try to tell you in some of the brands that ingredients in this product is toxic. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, if it were toxic, it wouldn't be in the brand. Mm. And the FDA wouldn't allow it in, in the product. So it's, a, it's many times it's an advertising thing where they say, don't use it because it has X, Y, and Z in it. And, you know, some of the people say, don't use this kind of preservative or that kind of preservative. And the truth is, and in many cases, there was no problem with it, but for whatever reason, it's out because somebody decided that it should be, mm -hmm. and it, it's fine. So we change uh, the formulas, but it, if it was toxic, it wouldn't be in the product. 
because I've heard, you know, some sort of chatter about like science-based brands. Most of them, you know, have toxins in them. And I'm someone in my own practice, which obviously is not skincare or product like that related, but I truly believe in like with everything I do, my specialty is blending together, you know, holistic practices with real evidence-based science. And so when I look to brands, I often look to brands that have a level of efficacy and um, are science-driven just because I also, like you, it sounds, um, have a real passion for science as well. And that's kind of what brought me into the field. It was more my own personal experience with, with more holistic practices that I almost was seeking out the science to like fit that because I, I wanted, I needed it to, otherwise it couldn't be, it just wouldn't have worked for me. So I, I almost came in with the holistic part and, and spiritual for me, the things that I knew were working inside of me in my brain and, and in my life. And then when I was in graduate school, I was looking for the science to back it up and it needed to sort of, I needed to have both. So I think I really, that's something that I love about the Murad brand and about your really ethos is that I find that you, you know, with the the whole human perspective and sort of like looking at someone in a holistic way, but at the same time, you're very driven by science. Absolutely. And, and again, the, the whole idea is making, looking at the whole person. We don't just look at the sort of the obvious right. and try to do something that's going to help the whole person whole person approach. How many times more often than not, or is, is someone's skin issue that you saw in your practice something that was internal? Oh, a lot. There are books that are written about internal manifestations of external disease, you know, or external manifestations of internal disease. Mm-hmm. So there's that connection. Again, your body is connected. Every single cell in your body is connected to every other cell. So what you put on your skin at some point is going to be helpful to uh, something else uh, other than just your skin. Do you have a favorite Murad product? You know what? I don't. Um, My answer to that question, because I've been asked that once before, is it hasn't been created yet. (laughs) I love that. There's always going to be something better. And if I just say this was the best, it's not. So, I, I mean, I love all the products. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in, in the Murad brand. And they're all, by the way, by and large, clinically tested. And, um, you know, we, we go through it in really extreme uh, ways of looking at it. Uh, we go through understanding not only the product, but the consequences of it and what it does topically and, and in, in other ways as well. Because some, some of the questions that we ask is, how does it make you feel? Mm-hmm. Not just what does skin look, but how do you feel when you have it on? Because some of the things about what our products do is encourage that sense of feeling, feeling better. Because you kind of understand how it shows up on on your skin. I actually have been someone personally that has had a really tough time finding sunscreen that doesn't feel greasy to me because I like feeling clean. And so when things are really like, oily on me. It just doesn't sit right. I feel like I have to wash my face right away or because I obviously have a very specific tone and color to my skin. A lot of the sunblocks are super white and that just doesn't work for me. But recently I was 
given a, a sunblock from Murad and it just like goes on very, very lightly. But I finally found a sunblock that I actually really like, which was a big problem because I wasn't using it every day and I knew how important sunblock oh, is. But I just didn't like the way, like when you say it has, you have to like the way it makes you feel and you have to like putting it on. And this one just is so light and it doesn't have a consistency of the sunblock that I have tried. So that's my favorite product from Mira. All of Mira products are very concentrated too. A lot of times, you know, the bulk of most products is water. If you look at the first ingredient, it's mostly water. And obviously we use water, but we use it in a different way. We have a new technology that we've been using uh, and it allows the water to work even better and makes our products very concentrated. So it goes a little bit, goes a long yes. way. You don't very much. Yes. So what, I have one more question for you, really. What has been your biggest reward, you know, personally and then professionally or your biggest sense of pride, something you're really proud of that you've created? Uh, well, I have to say I'm very proud of developing the, the brand and, and also proud of the fact that I took it to the level where I could take it and I allowed people to take it to the next level because uh, a few years ago I sold my, product, my brand to Unilever and I'm very proud of the, the decision because they had the wherewithal to take it to the next level which I, I realized that I couldn't. So I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I just feel that I've touched a lot of people in my life and hopefully I've helped them along the way. My mission in life is to make everybody I touch live happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives. I love that. It has been pretty eye-opening for me to get to talk to you and you know, in full disclosure, I've known about Murad for a long time. My mom actually used to use Murad when I was a kid. I use Murad now. And this is before, you know, I got a chance to speak with you and, and your team. But I didn't know so much about the heart and the soul and the man behind Murad. And I'm an even bigger fan now, I have to say. Um, thank you so much for being on. The last thing that we do at the Looking Up podcast is you get to pull a card. Well, because we're not together, I pull a card for you from my little baby, which is the Things Are Looking Up deck of optimism cards. And so it's the card that I pick for you is, I guess we can call it your homework for the day. And it'll just be by random. Okay. I love that. Okay. This one's yours. Give a positive shout out to someone right now. Call, text, email, write a letter or express in person your appreciation or gratitude towards someone you are thankful for. Silent gratitude is great, but loud gratitude is even better. So there's, well, there's your card. Um, hopefully you, you think of someone and you let them know. And by the I way, will. it could be yourself. Even the more, the better. But thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.